0: Hi, and welcome to what I think will be the last episode of this season, the first season of The Abnormal Psychologist. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Taylor, and I hope you've enjoyed the 25 previous episodes of this podcast. I'm planning on taking a little break over the holidays and then picking back up in early 2021. New year, new you, right? Or new year, new season. And I am taking episode requests, so send them to ctaylo 41 at cbu.edu, and I'll start prepping for them. I've really enjoyed this season, and as of recording this episode today, we're at over 5,000 listens. So, one of the criticisms I have of my podcast is so far, I've been like super, super heavy on the DSM-5. And that's okay, I guess, but the DSM-5 isn't great at certain things. It's not particularly great at gender issues, and it's not great at cultural issues, though it is an improvement over what we've had in the past. So I guess we are sort of moving forward. I think my episodes thus far have been overly focused on diagnostic aspects. And that's because of my own bias. I like being a diagnostician uh, better than being a therapist. Therapy is hard work. Uh, Sometimes you feel like you're just spinning your tires in therapy, spinning your wheels. So in the second season, I'll try to get more into therapy. Anyways, the DSM-5 isn't great with gender issues. And it's not great with cultural issues. And we'll focus on these two shortcomings in today's episode. But you know, and I mentioned this on my other podcast the other day, psychology also isn't really good at talking about money and religion. Religion falls under culture, I guess. Money issues are a huge source of stress. They're one of the top contributing factors to people's anxiety and depression. Yet in grad school, we don't really get any training on how to work with money issues. In fact, psychologists tend to be worse with money than the general population. Financial issues are a leading cause of divorce. They're a frequent contributor to suicide. But as a field, we sort of have our heads in the sand. I was fortunate when I did my clinical internship to work under financial psychologist Dr. Brad Klontz. He's sort of a pioneer in financial psychology, and he's written some best-selling books. Check him out, Brad Klontz, K-L-O-N-T-Z. I've also been privileged enough to co-author some papers with him. So money, yeah, we don't find much money in the DSM-5. We also don't find much about religion in the DSM-5. And most Americans say religion is one of the most important, one of the most valued things to them. I remember in a therapy course in graduate school, the professor asked us what we would do if one of our clients wanted to pray with us. And people just sort of looked around uncomfortably. A lot of times we don't even ask what religious affiliations our clients have. So religion and money, we struggle with those as a field. We also struggle with gender but we've come a long way. Remember, homosexuality was considered a pathology in the early versions of the DSM. It didn't fully go away until the revision of the DSM-3. In the DSM-2, homosexuality was considered a paraphilia, and paraphilias are sexual disorders in the DSM. They have their own chapter, and I didn't discuss them in this season of the podcast, so maybe I'll dedicate an episode to paraphilias in the next season. Paraphilias include voyeuristic disorder, exhibitionist disorder, frauderistic disorder, sexual sadism disorder, pedophilic disorder, fetishistic disorder, and transvestic disorder. So this last one, transvestic disorder, can be confusing to some people. I think there's a widespread misconception among people that being transgender is somehow connected with uh, transvestic disorder. And it's not. Transvestic disorder involves an intense sexual arousal when dressing as another sex. And this arousal causes impairment. Being transgender is not a psychopathology. It's not a diagnosis. Now, in the DSM-IV text revision, we had a diagnosis called gender identity disorder, GID. Gender identity disorder involved a person wanting to be another sex, a person feeling discomfort about their current sex, and this causing significant impairment. And this was a really controversial diagnosis. And it was done away with with the publication of the dsm 5 We no longer have gender identity disorder. But there is a disorder on the books called gender dysphoria. And really, there are separate diagnoses for gender dysphoria in children and then gender dysphoria in adults and adolescents. Gender dysphoria involves an incongruence between one's perceived gender and their sex parts. A strong desire to be rid of one's sex parts because of this incongruence. A strong desire for the sex characteristics of another gender a strong desire to be the other gender and to be treated as the other gender, and a strong conviction that one has typical feelings and behaviors of another gender. So far, this sounds a lot like the old gender identity disorder. But it also involves clinically significant distress or impairment. I think it sounds like a repackaged gender identity disorder. I don't know. I'm interested to hear what other people have to say about this. But again, to reiterate, being transgender is not gender dysphoria. In fact, the DSM-5 says... Given the increased openness of atypical gender expression, and I'm not sure I like the wording there, atypical, by individuals across the entire range of the transgender spectrum, it is important that the clinical diagnosis be limited to individuals whose distress and impairment meet specified criteria. Now again, there are counter viewpoints here. One is that we know individuals who are transgender unfortunately deal with harassment and rejection that make them much more vulnerable to suicide, depression, and substance use. 50% of transgender youth are rejected by both parents. And youth who are accepted, often it's only by one parent. 33% of transgender youth have faced physical abuse by parents. And even among transgender youth who are accepted by their parents, uh, they're at higher risk for suicide, mood disorder and substance use. Over 75% are bullied or harassed at school and half, this is super troubling, half are bullied or harassed by teachers. Half have attempted suicide, and this is compared to 2% of the population. And we had this in Hawaii, too. In Hawaii, men who identified as women were known as mahu. Uh, It's an ancient uh, term for a man who has chosen to live as a woman. And prior to the arrival of Christian missionaries, mahu were revered and respected in Hawaiian communities. But again, this changed with the arrival of the missionaries. 75% of mahu youth in Hawaiian uh, high schools experienced violence, and 21% drop out of school. So one argument I've heard is that through not having a diagnosis, you're creating a barrier to therapy for youth that may benefit from access to therapy, not in a weird conversion therapy way. And I could do an episode on conversion therapy in the future, I guess, Uh, but in a way that might save lives and force insurance to pay for the therapy sessions. Again, I'm not saying I agree with this, but it's a counter argument. Another argument that I've heard is that since we're talking about dysphoria here, and dysphoric mood is a hallmark of depression, why not just have a specifier under major depressive disorder for gender dysphoria? I guess the counter argument to this is that it might not be treated like most depressive disorders with an SSRI or something due to the peer rejection aspect. Another argument I've heard is to have no diagnosis on the book, Uh, right? It's not something that's wrong with you, it's something that's wrong with your bigoted parents and a bigoted society that we should be diagnosing these people who are rejecting transgender youth, right? There are a ton of resources out there on working with people who identify as transgender, such as the WPAT standards of care and the APA LGBT task force has a resource website dedicated to transgender issues. Um, So uh, do some Google searches. You can find a lot of resources out there. So gender, DSM-5 does not do a great job with gender, but we are getting better. And it's sort of the same story with culture. At least we're acknowledging culture now. Um, At the end of the DSM-5, there are a few sections dedicated to culture. One involves cultural formulation of diagnoses. The DSM-5 says, quote, the DSM-5 must be interpreted in the context of culture. So there is a cultural formulation interview in the back of the DSM-5. It contains 16 questions and covers cultural definitions and perceptions of the presenting problem and its causes. But I've yet to talk to a psychologist who has administered this cultural formulation interview, the CFI. Uh, I asked some psychologists in training when they'd administer the CFI, and they said if they were working with someone from another culture. And then I asked them how they'd know someone is from another culture, and then they just sort of looked at me dumbfounded. I guess they would just sort of stereotypically go off of how someone looked or dressed or talked, like if they were from another culture. I'm not sure. Um, I think that every client should conceivably be given a culture questionnaire and screener. Anyways, back to the DSM-5. We also have a glossary of cultural concepts of distress. These include attack de nervios from Latin America, which may be somewhat analogous to panic disorder, or melody moan, the scent sickness from Haiti, or mal de ojo in Spanish, the evil eye, which in extreme cases might present like delusions of persecution, Anyways, this is a short section of only a dozen or so conditions, but it's something. I guess it's progress. Uh, We used to have culture-bound syndromes in the DSM-IV, which were conditions that we thought might not exist outside of certain cultures. But they did away with this section of the DSM-V. One of the culture-bound conditions I was intrigued by was hikikomori, which occurs in Japan primarily among young men. Thousands of young men, and maybe even millions of young men in Japan, have become shut-ins, modern hermits. They live in apartments, they almost have no social contact, and they play video games for hours on end. Some have not left their apartments right in years, and this has become more sustainable uh, through food delivery. The numbers of hikikomori seem to be growing, but it's really hard to know exactly how many are shut in since it's sort of an invisible condition. Anyways, I'd like to close out this season with an experience by Andrew Solomon. And you might remember I talked about Solomon and his masterpiece book on depression, Noonday Demon, back in the depressive disorders episode. Anyways, Solomon struggled with depression for years. And when he was visiting Senegal, uh, one of his guides said that a sort of shaman named uh, Madame Buve might be able to perform an m ceremony, which is a traditional travel ceremony, to rid him of his depression. And Madame Buff generously agreed to perform the m and Solomon had to bring certain supplies to the ceremony, including a ram, a cockerel, millet grain, and fabric. He has a video describing the ceremony on YouTube if you do a search for Andrew Solomon the Moth, um, and I can't really do his retelling justice. Suffice to say... Uh, they end up bringing the goat to the ceremony in the trunk of a taxi cab, and it ends up urinating all over the taxi cab. Anyways, Solomon brings the supplies, and Madame Beauf begins the um-dop. She plays a song from Chariots of Fire on her cassette player. The villagers beat drums and dance around in concentric circles. Solomon is told to project the evil spirits of his depression onto the ram while laying down with the ram in a sort of marital bed, and then the ram is slaughtered and Solomon is wrapped in its intestines while the, de- uh, the dancing continues around him. And then he emerges from the intestines, and the ceremony is sort of over, and they feast on the ram. So usually when I'm showing the video of Andrew Solomon's retelling of the Mdap," some of my students laugh. And Solomon's a funny guy, and his retelling is sort of comedic. But he talks about how uplifted, how happy he felt at the end of the ceremony. And he recalls how in Rwanda, after the genocide... Western mental health experts were asked to leave the country, and the reason they were asked to leave was that instead of dancing and singing and feasting, they made people sit in tiny rooms with no windows and talk about their problems and terrible things that happened to them. Perhaps Western mental health is the laughable piece. We know from research that singing and dancing and an entire village showing up for support and for feasting and being outside makes us feel better. Not being alone in a drab, poorly decorated therapy room, rehashing bad things from the past. The effectiveness numbers for psychotherapy aren't great. Again, that's why I prefer being a diagnostician. Maybe we need to break through the walls of therapy, have therapy outside, in a park, in the open air, and reevaluate everything, reevaluate therapy and diagnoses, and yes, even the DSM, to be able to move forward as a field. Anyways, that's it for this season. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next season. Until then, stay safe, be well, and have a happy holidays.